Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on The Box, the new Richard Kelly thriller. Joining me in the Slate studio is John Swansburg. Hi, John. Hey, great to be here. Slate's culture editor. And uh, we saw The Box together last night. John is also in the midst of writing a review of The Box, which he's hopelessly tangled up in right now. So I'm going to throw the plot exposition to him. This is going to be, I should warn you, a very spoilery (laughs) podcast. So if you're going to see The Box and you don't want all of the mini twists spoiled, uh, wait until after you've seen it. And it's also going to be a very plot-heavy podcast because this is sort of like a Twin Peaks-length plot jammed into a two-hour movie. It definitely, it definitely is. It's you know, in the trailer they do a good job of making it seem like it's such a simple premise, and then at a certain point in the movie, you just it just kind of spirals into a convoluted place that I'm not sure that we can even figure out in the spoiler podcast, even though we're we're willing to sort of talk about all the details because. It's just really confusing. It's also almost a question how much of that is intentional and whether the plot holes are things that, you know, we get to be smart asses by pointing out or whether they're things that Richard Kelly, the director and writer of the movie, tried to build into the plot. So we can talk about that. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I don't uh, I don't know if you went back and watched it two or three times, whether you could fill in those holes. I suspect not. I don't want to go back and watch it two or three times though myself. Um, but the premise, I mean, in the trailer and sort of in the first half an hour of the movie or so, is actually gem-like in its simplicity and I think is a great great premise. We should also mention that it's based on a short story, kind of fantasy short story by um, Richard Matheson. Is that's that right, yeah. Name? And it, it was uh, apparently adapted into a uh, Twilight Zone episode, which I'm uh, looking forward to watching later this afternoon as part of my research for this uh, this review. But the, yeah, the basic, the basic plot is kind of great. It's sort of like a classic, um, you know, late night... Uh, in the dorm room with your, you know, philosophy 101 text and maybe a, a bag of marijuana or at least a bag of Pepperidge Farm Milanos or something, and you and your roommate are are tossing around bizarre scenarios, what would you do, kind of thing. Um, so this, uh, it t- it's set in this 70, 1976, and um, this sort of nice couple. They live in Richmond, Virginia. Wake up one morning to find a parcel on their doorstep, and in the in the parcel is this strange device. Uh, that's essentially like a wooden box uh, with a button on top. And later that day, a sort of mysterious man shows up um, and introduces himself uh, as uh, Arlington Steward. Played by Frank Langella. Right, uh, wonderfully. And uh, despite the fact that he's missing uh, the better part of his face uh, due to some some untold uh, awful accident, uh, Norma, who's played by Cameron Diaz, she's the wife in the in the family, invites him in very cordially to uh, to the home. And he explains that the box uh, with the button on it, um, the, the idea here is that it, they have two options. They could not do anything with the box, or if they want, they can push the button. And if they do push the button, um, they will receive a one-time uh, cash payment of $1 million. $1 million? Um, one, yes. He doesn't actually put his pinky uh, up to his lip, uh, Dr. Evil style, but he might as well have. Um, I guess a million dollars was sort of a lot of money in 1976. In 1976, sure. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, but you and I scoff at a yeah, million dollars. Yeah, come on. <laughs> million dollars. Um, so anyway, they can they will get a one time payment of a million dollars, but the 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 catch is when they depress the button, the same I guess at the instant they do that, someone somewhere in the world will die, and uh, the only thing we know about who will die is that it's someone that uh, Norma and Arthur don't know. So some stranger will be offed immediately, but they'll get a million dollars. And either way, he's going to come get the box in 24 hours, so they right. have 24 hours to decide. Right. So, the, so one of the funny things about this movie is that this is presented as an ethical dilemma. What should they do? When, in fact, it's not an ethical dilemma at all, right? I mean, there's only one right thing here. Don't do it. Um, and, and the movie begins by with a little bit of exposition where I think it's trying to set up why this is a hard decision for the Lewises, uh, I believe is, is their name. The Arthur works at NASA and was sort of assuming he was going to get a promotion. He wants to be an astronaut, and he 
finds out that he didn't get into astronaut training school. And the mom, uh, the Cameron Diaz character, uh, they should, I should say they have, a, they have a young son who's like about sixth grade uh, age, I think. Uh, she teaches at, the, at their son's school, and she finds out from an administrator that the, um, the, the tuition discount that had previously been given to faculty members uh, is, is up next semester. They're not going to do that anymore. So, so basically, we, we learn that the Lewis family, uh, you know, the, the husband just didn't get a raise, and the wife uh, you know, was not going to be able to secure a cheaper tuition for their son uh, going forward. So like, you know, they're in a sort of like slightly tight space for an upper-middle-class family. It's like kind of a weird setup for why you would, you know, opt to kill somebody and to get a million dollars. Seems to me, right? But but that's actually part of the strength of the movie. I think is that you know there really is sort of nothing. There's there's not there's nothing permissible about them pushing that button, right? Yeah, it is it's, an act of pure self. Yeah, I guess I just I thought when I saw the trailer that it was going to be more like the wife had some kind of un, you know cancer where you know they, they needed to come up with some money in order to. Get her the operation she, she needed to She is given this slight disfigurement, which we should get to later. It's a really weird choice on Richard Kelly's part, and I wonder if it's in the original story in the Twilight Zone. But it's Cameron not. Diaz's character is missing four toes <laughs> from one of her feet so, because of an X-ray accident when she was a child. Right. right? So, th- so this is I read this last night after we watched the movie. Uh, the New York Times did a, a piece on Kelly uh, two weeks ago. Apparently, that is an interpolation on Kelly's part, um, and that, that but that exact accident happened to his mother. And he's he's apparently shaped the characters of Arthur and Norma Lewis around his own mother and father. And he grew up in the Richmond area, which is why he set this story, uh, his version of the story there. But apparently that's just some weird thing that happened to his mom. But it's kind of a, it's just it's, it's thrown in there. But there, and they, there's a brief mention that, you know, she was supposed to get a, um, a, a some kind of surgery to repair or, you know, mend her foot in some fashion. But really, like, it just mean, it seems like she has, to, she has a little bit of a limp. It's kind of a bad reason to kill somebody. It's Even, kind of fascinating. There's a portrait of his mother too, because I wonder how his mother feels about having this, you know, <laughs> this person patterned after her who's so willing to push a button to kill a random stranger, and then embroils her family into this incredible um, conspiracy. So, okay, we have to get. To, we have so much plot to still Seriously, to yeah. Okay, so they push the button. Um, spoiler number one. Spoiler number one. They they push the button, and, and it's that, actually her who pushes the button. Right. In fact, slight um, misogyny note here. It's always the woman who pushes the button in every scene in this movie that there's that a couple is given the choice. Right. It's, it's Eve. You know, it's Eve reaching for the apple. <laughs> That's true. That's a great point. Yeah. So they push the button. Um, it, it sort of seems like it, at first they, they maybe don't entirely believe that anything is going to happen, although they do. I mean, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. But sure enough, um, the Frank Langella character um, shows up almost instantly after they push the button and he's got a briefcase with the money. Uh, and that it's at that point that I think it really starts sinking in for them that here's the money. Someone probably really did die. Um, and then the movie kind of moves into a phase where the Lewises and the viewer are sort of trying to figure out so what exactly are the are the ramifications of this decision like what you know who who exactly is this guy Arlington Stewart and what's going to happen to the uh you know the, the Lewis family having perpetrated this crime and very very soon it starts to become clear that Almost everyone they see is some kind of operative for the Frank Langella character, right? right? The babysitter that they hire to take care of their son, who in a very scary scene sort of sees a guy walk by outside the window while she's babysitting and then starts to act kind of zombie-like. You start to see that she's part of the plot. Right. Um, that everybody at a wedding rehearsal dinner that they go to, not everybody, but lots of people in the room are sort right. of part of the plot and seem to get be getting mysterious nosebleeds right. and Including... making mysterious hand signals. And there's some kind of a web emerging that Frank Langella is a part of. Right. We don't know exactly... Uh, who he is, but there's sort of some intimations right from the start that he is working 
at NASA, which is, again, where Arthur worked, and that he's sort of tied up with the NSA. Uh, so at first you kind of think, well, maybe this is some sort of weird X-Files-ish government experiment where... Or a parallax view kind of thing. I mean, right. I was seeing it as a completely secular, you know, non-metaphysical um, conspiracy theory kind of fantasy. Right, right. I mean, the, the nosebleeds is a kind of thing where it could be, oh, there's some sort of chip that's been implanted, sort of a rudimentary, uh, you know, brain implantation thing where uh, Langella is is, you know, controlling uh, his minions with some kind of device, and it, one of the side effects is that it causes nosebleeds. But in fact, that's that description is pretty pedestrian, given what happens, what we what we start to find out as the plot sort of spirals out of and control. And I think this is Act 2 that we're moving into now, after they push the button, but before you quite figure out what's going on, right. to the extent that you ever do, is, is the scariest part. There's a lot of kind of just uncanniness and, yes. and just mood, strange moods being created. Really great use of music, I think. This, you know, classic horror movie score that has this sudden warping, or the, the sound will kind of go, and then you know something bad's going to happen. Yeah, this and is this by... part where just people are strangely glaring at them in random places, bus stations, banks. Banks, libraries, yeah, is the scariest part of it. I agree. The, the middle section was actually really enjoyable. I, I think it, it was the, by far the best part of the movie, and, and it was it was uh, legitimately fun. I mean, you you kind of are trying to figure out who is part of the conspiracy and who isn't. You're trying to figure out who's in the conspiracy, and and to Richard Kelly's credit, he cast those roles really well. The, the, there's a busboy at the uh, rehearsal dinner, dinner that you m- mentioned who's just like incredibly creepy, and it just he does a lot by just staring at. Uh, the couple and then at one point flashing them the peace sign in this kind of way that you don't really know what it means. And or does it mean the number two? You don't know right. if it's a peace sign Ex- or a exactly. two. Exactly. Uh, it's, uh, it's just very odd, and, and uh, the mystery of it um, is captivating, and, and there are occasional moments of just being kind of shocked at by, by some turn of events. Now, as so often happens in movies like this, I think the closer you get to a resolution of what the mystery actually is. I mean, I don't know if we ever really get a resolution, but the more, the closer you get to figuring out what the nature of the conspiracy is, the less pleasing it is. I want to know in just a minute what you think actually is going on in the story, because I have two or three giant outstanding questions after seeing the movie, but let's take a break first for a word from our sponsor. So as regular spoiler listeners know, we have a deal with audible.com, the leading provider of audiobooks on the web, where if you sign up, you get a free book with your membership and you keep your book, even if you decide not to stay with your membership, although I guarantee you will, especially when you can listen to things like Richard Matheson's The Box, the story that this movie was based on, which exists on Audible in a collection called um, The Box and Other Uncanny Stories. Uh, it's by Richard Matheson, and it's read by Grover Gardner. We listened to a, to a little bit of it before the taping, and it's, it sounds great. So if you're interested in signing up to hear The Box and other uncanny stories and other uncanny books, um, go to audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler and sign up for the deal. Okay, so let's just let's jump back into where things start to, to to the extent they do when things start to ravel back up and, and make some sense. Um, right. So there's this long period of them, you know, running around Richmond being stalked by strange people and trying to figure out what they've gotten themselves into. Right. And realizing that whatever deal they made with the devil or whoever it was, it was not a clean deal, right? That right. That there's all kinds of strings attached and that they're now enmeshed in some kind of web. I would say that the, the point at which things start to first of all, get really, really strange and metaphysical, and secondly, you know, be explained in some way, is the library sequence, which is this long scene where apparently, separately, the husband, who we haven't mentioned yet, is played by James Marsden, and the wife, Cameron Diaz, both end up at the Richmond Library. For different reasons. Yeah, both researching sort of something related to the Langella problem, (laughs) Langella situation, (laughs) Um, and... 
and then all these crazy things converge. They're both separately researching, and it's actually this at this moment that you realize that setting the movie in 1976 was very smart because there's no internet yet. There's right. still the Dewey Decimal System. There's still reel-to-reel tape that she's watching, like a sort of. Um, a video, not a videotape. But it was a videotape. It was sort of strange. I thought at first it was microfilm, but it, it turns out to be video, I think. But it was on two reels, right? Yeah, so it was some, was some kind of 16-millimeter film or yeah. something like that, 8-millimeter. Anyway, there's all this old technology, which is kind of great and charming and makes you realize that it really would be much harder to research a conspiracy without the Internet, right? The totally. Internet is inventing conspiracies right and left that you can learn <laughs> about. So, so they're in the library, and then they start to realize that everyone in the library, every patron is part of the the box deal. Right, They're right. all these strange looking people, beautifully cast, sort of slightly off looking people that snap their heads around and look at you as you walk by. And and so the two of them are kind of herded into separate parts of the library. And do you want to take it from there? What happens to him is really crazy. Yeah. So he he's like in the stacks looking for he's been given he's been slipped some, uh, you know, some Dewey Decimal System number. And he's he's trying to find a book and uh, he's in the stacks. And all of a sudden he's accosted by this group of, I think, five uh, zombie-like guys who we now are, are gathering all work for um, the steward character. Zombie isn't even quite the word. Like These it's people right. are so weird. They're totally normal, and yet there's something really off about there's them. They're vacant. styled really great. Yeah. And they have kind of slack jaws. Right. The jaws kind of hang slack. They look like I don't know. They look like just slightly mentally ill or something. Yeah. It's very disturbing. They're, they're sort of. They seem like kind of programmed, but not. They're not like fully, you know, uh, arms out zombie sort of thing. They just seem like they're a little bit missing. Um, and so, yeah, they kind of show up and they're they're menacing, but not in the kind of like like we're gonna like eat you sort of way. They're just sort of like we're here. And well, it's so, just enough that you couldn't really say like what are you looking at me for? Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, in fact, you know, sometimes you're in the library and there are weird people in the stacks. You're like they almost sort of feel, seem like they could they could be there uh, in a in a world where where you know mind control doesn't exist, but. Uh, nevertheless, the the husband, the Arthur character, sees them and, and is is freaked out by them, and he starts to kind of make it run around through uh, the library and try to lose them, and, and and but they they sort of stay on his tail, and ultimately he ends up in this great uh, one of those great big city library research rooms, the ones with like the sort of green, green lamp shades where everybody is, is at first seems like they're doing research, but as he is he and, and is sort of angered by and turns turns around to like show their anger at him making noise. But then you you quickly realize that in fact all the people there who are who seem like they're doing research are also these weird quasi zombies, and he ultimately kind of makes his way to the front of the room where he's in, he encounters this woman who could either be the head research librarian or the wife of the steward character who turns out who I think her name was Calamity, um, and she uh, ushers um, Arthur into this other like room where he's presented with a choice between sort of three. <laughs> what columns of 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 ethereal water yeah like standing <laughs> columns of like bubbly liquid right and she essentially you know poses i guess the second uh you know uh freighted choice of the movie where he has to decide which of these columns of water he wants and she tells him that you know salvation lies through one of them uh the other two promise eternal damnation and the failure to make a decision also is uh uh, eternal damnation. So I, they, love, I love that moment where he goes, what if I don't decide? Well, eternal damnation. She kind of tosses it off. <laughs> exactly. So like, you know, literally in a matter of what, like two minutes of film, you've gone from like the movies, he's sort of doing research in a library. You think maybe he's going to figure out some relatively normal piece of information about, about this conspiracy, maybe something about the history of the, of NASA or the NSA or, or, you know, the Mars probe, which he worked on. And then all of a sudden you're in, um, what used to, what, 
you know, you're in a room off of a, off of a research library, uh, main reading room, and there are three columns of water. And you're just like, what is going on here? So he's been flashed the number two by a couple different characters at this point, the aforementioned, um, creepy bus boy, and also a weird valet at <laughs> the same, uh, um, rehearsal dinner. And so he chooses number two without actually thinking about it all that much. And we don't even know if he ever made the right choice or not, right? No, we have no idea. So he enters the column of water and then just kind of disappears. And, when- and, then, and then the next thing we see, and this is actually, I sort of respect this. I mean, I think that the movie starts to fall apart at this point, but I yeah. do love that Richard Kelly goes there. Whatever weird place he wants to go, he goes there. He this certainly is, does. This is certainly not a, a sellout pot boiler the way he tried to present it in that, in that time space. It's a completely nutty and, and utterly personal exploration. So the next thing you see is James Marston suspended in this sort of like gelatinous hovering cube of water right. hanging over Cameron Diaz's bed, their bed, right. back at home. Right. And she looks up and says, what the hell? My husband is suspended in a gelatinous cube of water. And then suddenly he falls onto the bed and the house is flooded with water and they're back in their normal world again. And they have no idea what it all meant or what it's about. Right. And it's sort of great that in the next scene they're like mopping, <laughs> and like griping at each other and mopping. <laughs> I know that that Because you never see the aftermath detail. of these kind of these moments in movies. Right, right. So from that point on, you kind of realize, okay, something really weird is going on. Again, like uh, up until that point, I thought maybe it's an X-Files level quality of government conspiracy, um, maybe some paranormal or um, extraterrestrial action going on. But I didn't think it was quite going to go to the like teleporting via, uh, you know, hydraulic cube. (laughs) Uh, And so at that point, it just things kind of get weirder and weirder. I mean, and so what's eventually posited is that Frank Langella, well, we already know that he was struck by lightning. That comes out early in the movie is right. that this guy, Arlington Stewart, used to work for NASA and was struck by lightning during a, <clears throat> you know, some kind of Mars probe, not on Mars, but on, on the planet Earth. Right. It's a, so the, um, Arthur worked on the, I guess, the Viking uh, Mars landing apparatus, which sent information back from Mars. And this lightning strike happened during the transmission of information from the probe to Earth, I think. And so we already know that. We know he was struck by lightning and that half his face is gone because of it, right? Right. But then what we discover in some, I thought, pretty leaden scenes inside what appears to be like a giant airplane hangar. Yeah, terrible points of exposition. Suddenly there's these, you know, kind of gray beards from from the NSA that pop up and explain to us or to some character who's our proxy, basically, that when he was struck by lightning, Arlington Stewart actually died and was put in a a locker, a a mortuary locker, and then started to laugh madly from beyond this locker and came back to life. And that when he came back to life, he was this odd super being that's now being kept in this airplane hangar by NASA. And and right. what? And what exactly? Well, well, is he being kept in the airplane hangar by NASA or is he in control of all – like is he basically in control of everybody at NASA? I mean I sort of got the sense at the end that it seemed for a while like he was he was some kind of supernatural – supernaturally gifted character who, who NASA or the NSA or both were trying to exploit when in fact it seems like he's actually in control of, of the, that entire wing of the US government and is using it to um, conduct its, these experiments we should I guess this is an important part too so we also get a, a, a sort of leaden scene of exposition about what the, the, what the purpose of, the, of these boxes are like what is going on and, and, he, and here I could be totally wrong about this I'm curious what your, what your take on it was as I understood what he said it was he's now in contact with some higher power. So we don't know if uh, if this character is somehow uh, a vessel for some kind of divine power or whether he's being controlled by some kind of alien extraterrestrial force, maybe Martians. Uh, we never actually see who his employers are, uh, as, he, as he phrases it. Um, but we do get a sense of what uh, the experiment is at, at a certain point uh, or what the purpose of the box is. Uh, and... He he describes uh, the the sort of what they're testing for is is humanity's 
altruism coefficient. Uh, basically, you're trying to figure out whether human beings are good enough to be allowed to continue to exist in the universe. So there's sort of some sense that there's this un, there's this, some calamity is going to, to befall the the universe of the galaxy, and and the the force that controls Stewart needs to know are human beings going to stand up and, and do the right thing? So they're going around house by house and trying to, and, and giving them this this test. Um, and we so, get the impression that humanity is not doing very well for itself because no, we not, don't see anyone refuse the test. Right, right. And, and, the, and of course, the really ridiculous thing is that the steward character intimates that if enough humans fail the test, the you know his employers uh, are going to make the decision to just wipe out all of humanity, which seems like a not particularly nice thing to do. <laughs> I don't really understand why the existence of some bad apples in the in the bunch would mean that you'd have to eliminate everybody. Never explained. Yeah. So the, as we leave the movie, there's a bunch of questions that I still have about what um, what state our our protagonists are in. But the last thing that happens with the Lewis family, right after a bunch of bizarre permutations, after the whole water cube suspension bit, right. is that. They, Norma and Arthur, James Marsden and Cameron Diaz, realize that in order to save their son, who's been, like, transported through water somehow and is now locked in their bathtub upstairs, blind and deaf, he's right. lost his hearing and his sight, um, that the only way they can restore him back to himself is to sacrifice Cameron Diaz. So, right. and, and that James Marsden has to kill her. Right. Right. So, actually, this really harks back to Donnie Darko, to Richard Kelly's first movie, the kind of sacrificial logic of the ending, which is something I really didn't like about that movie. So essentially, she has to sacrifice herself in order for her son to be able to see and hear, right? Right. Um, so in a sense, what goes around comes around, right? Like a stranger had to die because they pushed the button, mm -hmm. but presumably the box was passed on to someone else. In fact, we see a brief glimpse of these people that we've never seen before, right. saying, "Hey, let's push this button." Again, it's the wife that pushes the button, and then we understand that what goes around comes around, and Cameron Diaz dies at that very moment. Right. 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 So the the. Arthur fires the gun at the precise moment when the other family pushes the button. And then we sort of get the sense that when Cameron Diaz had pushed the button, someone else had fired a, a, a gun into the heart of his wife. But there's a huge logic hole in the last conversation they have with Frank Langella, though, I have to say. When he lays this out for them and says, son, deaf and blind, in order to save him, I mean, it's back to the dorm room stoner conversation, right? right? Like, will you kill your wife in order to save your son? And, of course, Cameron Diaz offers to be killed because she doesn't want her son to have to live that way. Um, and they never ask Frank Langella... Well, what's going to happen? Is 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 James Marsden going to be subject to the law? I mean, we've seen other people kill other people during this movie because of the box, and it's been recognized as a murder by the state, right? right. And the state is after them, but they never pose that question to Frank Langella. So he does kill her. The cops do come, right? right. The son gets his hearing and sight back. Cameron Diaz is lying there dead. What they're going to say to the son after he wakes up, I have no <laughs> idea. I'd love to see that in the sequel. But... As the cops come to take him away, then it becomes clear that James Marsden is actually going to go into some sort of, like, Frank Langella federal witness protection program. Yeah, he gets because spirited instead, away. These, these black-clad dudes come and take him in a, a separate car, not a police car, and spirit him away in that. And the sense I got at the end, tell me if you agree with me, is that James Marsden is already dead. We forgot to even mention the part. We, we don't have the time now to go back and talk about the fact that he may already have died earlier in the movie and be suspended in some weird post-death state right now. Right. But what happens at the end, at any rate, seems to be that he has now been conscripted and he's going off to work for Frank Langella and that he's going to be one of the new, um, you know, peace sign throwing slack jawed spooky guys. Yes. Is that, is that your idea? Yeah. That's, that's my impression that, that he joined the ranks and that the, there are a lot of those. We, we ultimately learned that there are a lot of those people. There's a whole, at least a whole roadside motel full of them <laughs> off I-95 in Virginia uh, that we know of and, and perhaps more. 
So it's a little bit of a body snatchers ending where, you know, you have that sense that the circle is going to get broader and broader. It's it's a pretty dark ending because we've lost one of the two main characters right. killed by the other. And then we have the sense that he's he's kind of gone over to the to the other side. And there's no indication that, like, there's some bright spot where there's some person who's good who's going to not push the button. Like, you know, you could have imagined uh, an ending at the, where where, you know, some some people there, there's an the idea is posited that, oh, these people aren't going to push the button and maybe there's hope for hum- humankind. It just seems like humankind's, you know, barreling towards elimination by the Martian overlords, maybe. So so I just have to ask you, and I know that you yourself are probably still struggling this question with this question. I mean, I enjoyed parts of this movie immensely, but I'm really glad I don't have to review it because I actually have no idea fundamentally whether it's it's any good or not. Yeah, I don't think it is. I mean, the more I've thought about it, I, I don't think I could. I don't think I could. Um, <laughs> Our producers falling on the floor laughing at that for some reason. I, I mean, uh, I, I'm sad because I, I'm someone who had a soft spot for Donnie Darko. When I first saw Donnie Darko, I, I thought I didn't. I mean, I, I thought immediately that this is a deeply flawed movie, but it was. I thought it was a really interesting one. It seemed like the kind of movie that you're like, okay, this is a director who clearly has a vision who maybe needs to be rein that vision in a little bit, and he needs to refine his movie making skills and his storytelling ability. But maybe he's going to grow into something. But he's certainly in touch with his subconscious or whatever it is. I mean, yeah. you can't. You certainly can't gainsay that with Richard Kelly. Yeah, and and like you said, and like I think we both we both felt like there was a stretch in the in the middle there that lasted maybe thirty minutes that was really fun. And you know, you jumped out of your seat at one point, uh, and I did. I think I probably did well, because too. Because to me, that's the scariest. The scariest thing of all is is the world but slightly off you know uh, that, yeah. that idea that things are just slightly off is, right. is much scarier to me than the idea of martians controlling us all right and it's like all of a sudden you realize it's things are so so off uh and then the, the movie just becomes a little bit silly you know i think if you loved donnie darko um if maybe i would put it this way if you've seen donnie darko more than once you could go to this movie and you'll probably find something to enjoy in it if you didn't like donnie darko I don't think I'd recommend it. And I feel bad because, you know, the New York Times piece you mentioned earlier sort of made it seem like Kelly feels like he needs to make a Hollywood hit to kind of keep going. Like he wants to work within the system and, and to and get bankrolled by real studios to make uh, to make movies. He sort of doesn't want to do the, the festival circuit anymore. And I just can't imagine this movie's going to be a hit. It's just too bizarre. I think it could be a cult hit, though. I mean, I think it's going to continue to capture that same sliver of the audience that he captured with, with Donnie Darko and Southland Tales. I never saw his second movie, but I know it had some fevered admirers. Yeah, I wanted to be one of those people. I, w- I went and saw it, but that movie was just, I mean, this movie this movie seems coherent compared to Southland Tales, um, like a lot coherent compared to Southland Tales. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, glad I w- I'm glad I went to see this movie. I, I, I sort of... Uh, and I enjoy. I legitimately enjoyed the middle of it, and I sort of uh, was amused by the silliness of of the end of it. It's it's. Uh, I've certainly seen worse. Yeah, I would concur. If you have a passionate interest in in the director or the subject matter or stoner questions in general, it's, right. it's, it's it's worth a shot. Yeah, definitely. Well, John, thanks so much for seeing the movie with me. Oh, thank you. And thanks for joining me for this Slate spoiler special. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.